Good evening, everyone. I see you're all still here. Made it through one day. Sometimes it feels like we're on a ship together and we all have different functions. And, but we're all together and we're sailing along and we don't know where we're going. So what do you get when you cross an insomniac, an agnostic, and a dyslexic? Someone who lays awake at night wondering if there really is a dog. (laughs) A horse walks into a bar. Bartender says, why the long face? Question, why are pirates so mean? I don't know. They just are. (laughs) Another question. How do you make holy water? You boil the hell out of it. Bad one. Okay, enough bad jokes or I could do this for an hour. Uh, But actually telling jokes for an hour wouldn't be too far off the mark. Uh, There was a study last year at uh, Loma Linda University, and what they discovered um, was that when people engage in what they called humor-associated mirthful laughter, (laughs) humor-associated... Hang with me here. And and that probably doesn't mean, you know, mean sarcasm. That's not included in that. But the brainwave functions are very similar to that of meditating. So that type of humor that kind of makes you laugh um, sustains high amplitude gamma band oscillations. And what could be more fun than having high amplitude gamma band oscillations? So they said that is the only, those gamma oscillations is the only frequency that's found in the entire brain. And so, along with when you're meditating, there's a frequency, that same frequency in the entire brain. So, it's interesting. They did, they did this study. They had about 30 people, a little more. It wasn't a large study. But each subject uh, watched three videos. And one video was kind of humor-inducing. Another video was, had a spiritual tone to it. And the third video was distressing in some way. And they hooked everybody up with the, with the, with the EEGs. And what they found was that uh, with the mirthful laughter, you know, there were these gamma wave bands, and it's very similar uh, to meditation, what's going on in the brain. And then when, they, when, when you're hooked up and you're watching something spiritual... It was very similar to the brain at rest. So it was very restful, but it didn't engage the whole, the whole brain. And finally, the distressing uh, video uh, was similar to what you'd see on the brain of somebody who was uh, a little detached and really didn't want to deal with, with the difficulties that were being shown on the screen. So 
uh, all kidding aside, the, the useful takeaway from this study for me was that it, it just reinforced what I've discovered in my own practice and in teaching over these years, namely that it's a good thing to the best of your ability to be cultivating a light touch, a light and, and even a humorous attitude in relation to the workings of your mind. I mean, really, can you control this mind of yours? Not so much. Um, it'll think all kinds of things, shameless things. And just today, how many thoughts have you had? How much real control have you had over this mind? You know, I often consider what it would be like if they hooked us all up, if our minds, and this is probably coming soon, could hook up, our, hook up everybody's mind in here to loudspeakers and play them all simultaneously, unedited. <laughs> now, talking about funny, talking about embarrassing. Um, so, in this practice... You're encouraged to explore ways to cultivate a perspective of, or an attitude toward this wild and crazy mind of yours that is not adversarial. And actually cultivate an attitude that is more than just grudgingly tolerant. We're cultivating an attitude that, that toward yourself, towards this mind and heart that's empathic, that's understanding, that's kind even forgiving. There's a line in a, in a poem. It's an anonymous poem by a samurai. forget what century it is, 12th century, something like that. And it says, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. And if you can walk away from here next Friday and honestly say to yourself, well, you know, I'm feeling a lot more friendly with this heart-mind uh, than, than I was when I came in here. You've pretty much gotten your money's worth. So humor is one, one of what I'd call the constellation of attitude factors that are supportive and helpful when you're engaging in a contemplative practice like this. They're, they're foundational factors that... Uh, when they're there with us, a very powerful uh, practice develops, transformational. I didn't need Loma Linda University to tell me that, you know, that it's helpful to have a light attitude about this. I mean, it's born out of my experience as a meditator, and um, I want to tell you a story. And several years ago, I, uh, out of my ongoing interest in exploring uh, deep states of samadhi, also known as the meditative absorptions or the jhanas. I finally had an opportunity to study with maybe, or mo most people consider him the foremost teacher of these meditative absorptions in the world, uh, Pawak Sayadaw. Now he's a Burmese, uh, Burmese monk. He's got a couple of, there are several large monasteries in Burma. Um, and uh, very, very popular teacher during the rains retreat, which is a retreat that when it rains, and this has gone on for centuries, the monks and nuns stop moving around and they stay in one place. It's hard to move anyway with all the rain. 
and they practice intensively. Well, every year at his main monastery, there's over a thousand monks and nuns that come, and he teaches them or tries to teach them these meditative absorptions. So as good fortune would have it, um, he decided to come to the United States and see if it's possible to teach the, this system to Western meditators in a, uh, in a place that's conducive to it. So he came to the Forest Refuge in, in uh, Barry, Massachusetts. And he taught a two-month course one year, taught a four-month course a couple years later, and then another four-month course. I attended uh, the first two for me. And um, I learned an awful lot. But very high on the list was a ripening of some attitudinal factors that, um, especially at that two-month retreat, it really showed me where some work was needed. And so I want to tell you about that experience I had as hopefully as a help to you so that you can maybe avoid some pain and suffering in, in, in your practice as you go along. Uh, Powell requires a lot from his students. Um, his English is okay, it's not great, but it's easy for students to sometimes misinterpret his instructions, misinterpret that he's telling them that a great heroic striving is necessary and that you've got to push and all this effort is needed. So I took on these, uh, took on these training and I really knew that's really not the case. But unbeknownst to me, I started slipping into this striving for these highly concentrated blissful states, the, these jhanas. Day after day, week after week, efforting, efforting, spending 10, 12 hours on the cushion, some walking meditation each day, really pushing. And then it happened. It was probably about six weeks in. I can't remember exactly. Um, my mind broke. It just, it's the only way I can describe it, is it broke. I mean, it done broke. And so I was meditating in my room one evening, as I always had done, and things started getting a little fuzzy, woozy. Um, um, and something was wrong, and, and I just kind of crawled into bed, and I lied there, and uh, realized I couldn't think straight. I, I couldn't think coherently. I couldn't string thoughts together. And so I was a little afraid. I didn't know what was happening. I mean, was this temporary or had something snapped? Um, I was exhausted. I drifted off to sleep. I slept a long time. Usually on retreat, I'll set my alarm so I can get up really early and make use of that precious time. I didn't do that that time. I slept a long time. So upon awakening, the first thing I noticed was, oh, the mind seems to be back. It's rested again. I did, I, and I'm waking up in my room. I wasn't waking up in some mental hospital with somebody spoon-feeding me gruel. I'd come through this okay. And now... It was like, oh, let's, let's see what, you know, what was happening. What, what maybe caused this and what can I do about it? 
And reflecting on it, I had forgotten some important aspects in the practice, or they had receded far back. My, my lust for these uh, uh, special states were so great that they, they just weren't available to me. And the first thing, or maybe the foremost, is that everything we do in contemplative practice is supported by tranquility and relaxation. Everything. Not by striving, pushing, grabbing, trying to get something. And what this meant on the ground floor of practice is that uh, when I felt myself pushing It was really time to pause, really time to take a pause, slow down, maybe take some deeper breaths, relax back into a fully embodied presence, feel the aliveness, re-relax, maybe soften in the face, neck, shoulders, kind of the basic stuff. And of course, that that tact is, is useful in all aspects of practice, not just when we find ourselves striving. When you discover yourself in a long thought train and you wake up out of that, it's a wonderful moment. You're awake. You've awakened. It's a moment of awakening. You know, Just pausing there, noticing the difference, really feeling the difference in that aliveness, that vividness, as opposed to when we're grinding away in a story, allowing the nervous system to begin to get used to it, sensitized to it. And then to take some moments to re-relax. When we're grinding away in a story, oftentimes there's tension that builds up. So we come back, we feel back into the body, feel that aliveness, and there may be some tightness, some contraction, some tension from that thought. And then we just re-relax a little bit. Take our time. There's no hurry to get back to the anchor. And then we land softly and gently. So the second adjustment that I rediscovered that was needed that morning, uh, it was certainly related to the first about tranquility and relaxation. But it has kind of some special characteristics. And that's, I lost some of my sensibility of self-compassion. When I was thinking about it, this, all this pushing and driving, um, that kindly acceptance of the moment-to-moment movements of the heart-mind were a little bit lost to me. I, there was, I, was, I was doing violence to this organism by pushing it so hard, whipping it along even though I knew, I mean intellectually, I knew perfectly well that compassionate acceptance and self-care is essential in this practice. I was just fixated on getting those states. So I was hurting myself. And lastly, on that morning of revival, I guess I could call it, I realized that I was, for the most part, missing my sense of humor and my awe for the mystery of all of this. All that had somehow dimmed out. My, my usual playful curiosity was missing in the game. 
So this is all a mystery that we're in. Dear ones, it's such a mystery. It's awesome. I mean, who are we? This aliveness that we feel, you know, it's indescribable. We live on this tiny little watery planet. It's sailing through this unfathomably vast universe. We don't even know where the edges are. and We don't know where it's all going. And here we are in this little biosphere. So it can be really supportive to reflect occasionally on the awe of all this, the the mind-blowing mystery of how much we don't know. Generate some curiosity, interest. See humor where you can see it. With some supports like that, maybe you won't be so inclined to grip on so hard. Maybe there'll be some, a little bit of letting go. Life is so short. So to finish up that experience on, on, on that retreat and, and further work with Pawa, um, I went on the following retreat, the, 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 the next four-month retreat, and I thought it best that I go a month early and just warm up because it was so rigorous. So it was a five-month retreat for me. He came a month later, and I was really working in these attitudinal factors. I was doing the practices that I learned before, but then relaxing back, falling back into presence, taking time, not pushing, you know, keeping my sense of humor about this wild and crazy mind. Um, And it was a fabulous experience, keeping those attitudinal factors front and center. I learned so much on so many different levels. And sadly, it was a silent retreat. I mean, it was very... The sittings started at an hour and a half, and then you met with him every day, and he moved them up to three hours and four hours of, of sitting. And sadly, I couldn't speak, and there were a lot of my friends there and other teachers and longtime meditators who this was their first experience, and I could see them falling into what I had fallen into and eventually kind of crumbling in on themselves from kind of misinterpreting and striving, and many of them left before the retreat was over. Names of teachers you would recognize. It's an easy, seductive trap. I want this state. So we don't have to go there. Some of you probably spent this first day with your mind going in all directions like a chipmunk on a triple espresso, you know. And, and others, you know, like being submerged in a vat of molasses. You know, occasionally you kind of crawl to the surface and come out of the goo for a little while and then sink back in. <laughs> Those are the extremes. And then, of course, everything in between. But whatever the day held for you, it's okay. It's workable. You're going to experience everything this week, the full panoply of consciousness. Challenging, difficult, unpleasant, lovely, restorative, beautiful, the whole deal. But whatever the experience is, they all deserve 
your attention, your understanding, your acceptance, your gratitude, and even your appreciation, even the challenging ones. So I want to look tonight with you at some of the challenging energies. Try to set them in a helpful perspective that will um, help you as you practice. These challenging energies just aren't about practice. They're about life. So a long time ago, a long, long time ago, this morning, (laughs) you were given instructions by Tara on how to meditate. And they're pretty simple, right? I mean, pretty simple. But simple as they were, it's not so easy. All kinds of energies arise. Some of them not so restful. Some of them you might think they're in the way. They're not getting you anywhere. And Pali, these challenging energies are called nivarana. And, literally, and that literally that translates as to coverings which hinder clear seeing. I just like to refer to them as challenging energies. And sometimes supportive friends or limbic lovers, and more on that as we go on. And they're broken out into five broad categories, classically. First one is wanting or lust. It's the wanting mind, grasping out for things. Aversion, which includes the energies of anger, fear, guilt, shame. And that's the not wanting mind, kind of pushing away. There's restlessness and worry. I think, we all, I think we're all familiar with all of these. There's sleepiness, dullness, classically called sloth and torpor. And then there's doubt. And they're described in the Pali Canon in various ways. And um, this is from the Buddha. This heart-mind, O monks, is luminous. But it is covered by adventitious visitors. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is no mental development. He goes on. This heart-mind, O monks, is luminous. But it is free from adventitious visitors. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is mental development. So in that passage, mental development is referring to the cultivation of both the heart and the mind. And and in a number of Asian languages, and in Pali, uh, there's one word for heart-mind. It's not separated out. It's it's citta. So mental development both encompasses the ability to gather the the forces of the heart-mind together in samadhi, in a collected way, a kind of a bright, powerful unification. And then, and then to use that more powerful tool, that tool that's able to penetrate into experience, see more clearly just what the nature of nature is, to understand our life more fully, 
our relationships, the big spiritual questions. You know, what is the self? What about impermanence? How do I suffer? It's the wisdom function. And at the same time, cultivating a relationship to all of creation that's compassionate and loving, the, cultiva- the full cultivation of the heart. And another part of that little passage parts, uh, points to something that's, that's important. The heart mind is luminous. The deep heart mind, by its very nature, it's not dark, murky, it's not dull, it's not turbulent. In its essential character, it has brightness and light. It's filled with a shining, open, non-conceptual intelligence and deep tranquility. And it has a knowing quality. And it's essentially unruffled by anything. It has a capacity to hold everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And as the Buddha reminds us, this luminous heart-mind is visited from time to time. And I know you've all heard this poem, but I love it so much, and it's so on the mark for our contemplative practice, uh, the guest house by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, Still, treat each guest honorably. She may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Welcome and entertain them all. So these energies come up in this heart-mind. Have you considered why they come up? You know, we've got this luminous heart-mind and they get temporarily and periodically covered over by all kinds of stuff and energy. So one of the important points I want to make tonight is that these energies are really the organism loving itself. They're loving visitors mysterious primal survival energies coming out of the deep subconscious, coming out of the primitive parts of the brain, the brain stem, the, the, the uh, limbic area of the brain. But they're vigilant energies, all of them, designed to ensure your survival. Uh, energies whose deepest intent, although they are driven by survival, can be looked at as energies of caring, attempting in their own way to provide you with some comfort, to help you avoid pain, to protect you, connect you with others, guarantee your survival. And sometimes they're misguided. You know, they don't have a broad wisdom. 
they're fueled by that, the primitive reactions of fight, flight, or freeze. And if we are enslaved to them, they cause a lot of suffering. And I found that over the years that learning to hold them with respect and appreciation as protectors, allies, lovers even, sometimes misguided protectors, allies, and lovers, is really the way to go. Because if you hold these energies, this wanting, this lust, anger, fear, guilt, restlessness, worry, sloth, doubt, whatever, as your enemy that must be defeated, it sets you up for more internal strife, warfare, fragmentation, and the worst cases, self-loathing. I mean, there's times in my early practice um, where I felt I'd mastered the fine arts of having the fine art of having all these energies at the same time, simultaneously. I'd be sitting there trying to meditate, and I'd be wanting this or that. It's like this food. I'd prepare this food different, and I don't have my favorite food, and I want all this stuff. And then I'd be having an aversive reaction. The person next to me—they're sniffling and they're they're zipping their jacket up and down, and it's annoying. And so I'm wanting, and I'm annoyed, and I'm aversive, and then I'm and I'm getting restless through all this and then somehow I'm all fogged over I can't even like perceive what's going on and then I start doubting myself I I can't do this maybe some people can do this but this isn't for me and those people up there don't even know what they're talking about so then doubt's in there so I'm just this crumbling mass of meditator having a full experience of all the challenging energies a multiple challenging energy attack (laughs) maybe you've had some of that today you know? So it's all workable. Your basic mindfulness practice um, gives, gives you the capacity to work with these skillfully. Because in the moment when you, when you notice what's going on, oh, I'm having a multiple, you know, challenging energy attack. You know, just that. You know? There's a little spaciousness then. There's a little healthy detachment from it. A new relationship is formed. You're not lost under it, submerged, beaten down by it. It's like, oh, look at this. Isn't this weird and, you know, unpleasant? You know? So that moment of recognition brings a little, a little spaciousness in. So, but when these energies are up, gosh, they're up. And they can have some punch to them. And so what are, what are some helpful ways to work with them? Practical stuff. You know, when, there's a, when you're feeling, oh gosh, there's all this wanting, lust, hate, fear, restlessness, planning, worry, whatever, doubt. There's an acronym that's developed uh, over the years that, that many find helpful and many of you have heard about it. And we always like to mention it in, to, in some detail as, as we begin a retreat. And, the acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. And uh, very briefly, the, the R is simply to recognize what's happening as it's happening, that, that recognition. The A is to accept what's happening, allow it, another A. Accept and allow, allow it to play through. 
And so the recognition and the allowing are kind of like the, the ground level. You know, we've got to recognize it first or nothing really happens, and then can we allow it? And then there's the investigating, and it's investigating with kindness, investigating with intimacy. I investigate intimacy. There's kindness in there. And the end is really not so much to do if we've recognized aloud and investigated with uh, some kindness and intimacy. The end is a non-identification. And another way to consider N is that we're in those moments when we're not identified yet fully experiencing what's happening with some kindness and equanimity, we're returning back to resting in that more natural, luminous, bright, wakeful, loving awareness. And so what this process of RAIN or this acronym helps us do it. It's a systematic attention shift from some of the less wise behaviors and perspectives to, um, although they're well-meaning and survival-oriented, it shifts the attention to a more compassionate relationship, a relationship that is more like attending and befriending. a relationship that really brings into play the, the newer portions of the brain. We're kind of moving from the brain stem and the limbic system into the frontal cortex. So, first the recognition, R. You can also feel it as the initial receiving. There's a receptivity to experience, a soft receptivity. You know, a, a giving with. In baseball, you learn to catch a fly ball. You kind of give with the ball when it comes a little bit or it clangs off your glove. So you kind of give with the experience. Allow it. There's a story. Um, story about Mara. And if you don't know about Mara, there, there are many, first of all, there's many superficial, uh, supernatural characters in the mythology of the Buddha, and maybe the most ubiquitous of them all is Mara. Mara is a demon, sometimes called the Lord of Death, and the literal translation is destruction, the god of destruction. He, she, whatever, represents so many different things in, in the Buddhist mythology, the greed, the lust, delusion, fear, anxiety, laziness, all our neuroses, all our insecurities that make life difficult, all our challenges, the internal psychological challenges, all the external challenges. Mara represents all of these. It's all the curveballs that, that life throws us. Now, Mara is probably best known for um, her part in the Buddha's enlightenment or his part in the Buddha's enlightenment with the story coming to be mythologized as this confrontation. The Buddha is meditating and settling in after years of practice and lifetimes of practice and this final challenge by Mara who, who uh, first tries to frighten him and then tries to seduce him and then tries to challenge his basic self-worth. 
But after the Buddha's awakening, Amara and the Buddha had many other encounters. And one happened not long after his enlightenment, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that one in some detail. So the Buddha's meditating in his cave. And his dearest of friends and longtime attendant, Ananda, is practicing walking meditation out in front of the cave. And now, Ananda, at this point, was not enlightened, a very earnest practitioner, and completely devoted to the Buddhist practices and the Buddha and, and helping spread those practices around, but not yet enlightened. So Ananda sees somebody coming up the path, and lo and behold, it's Mara. So Ananda kind of girds his loins a little bit. He's a little protective of the Buddha, and so Mara arrives at the cave entrance. And probably with a little curtness in his tone, Ananda says, why are you here? You know? And Mara answers, well, I was in the neighborhood. I thought I'd come up and have a chat with the Buddha. You know? Is he available? And Ananda says, come on, you must be kidding me. I really kind of thought we were finished with you. You're considered an enemy, and it wasn't that long ago that you were defeated at the Buddha's enlightenment. It's a little brazen of you to come up here. And Mara laughed out loud. So the Buddha has an enemy, eh? That's very interesting. Aha. Please ask him if he has a few minutes to chat with me. And Ananda was pretty sure the Buddha wouldn't agree to see him. Remember, Ananda's not completely enlightened at this point. But the Buddha would tell Mara that something, you know, go tell Mara I'm in conference or I'm on a Skype call or something, <laughs> and I can't, I can't meet with him today, you know. But to Ananda's surprise, the Buddha said, oh, how nice. Please invite him in. And so the Buddha kind of moved around, and he got his favorite bench and got the softest pillows, and he set them up, and Ananda escorted Mara back into the cave and the Buddha got up and gave him a hug and took him by the arm gently and sat him down and kind of looked into his eyes and got up close and how are you my friend the Buddha said how have you been is everything okay with you is there anything that you need is there anything I can do for you And so the Buddha certainly recognized and invited and allowed Mara to come in. He didn't turn away and didn't see Mara as the enemy. All visitors are accepted by the Buddha. All castes, all types, even the shadowy ones, demons, so to speak. So Buddha... you know, he accepts Mara's presence completely. That's the R and the A, the recognition, the acceptance. And let's face it, because we're, because we're human, it's not so easy to fully accept everything that arises, really. We're wired to move away from unpleasantness. And you might remember 10th, 10th grade biology where we get some pond water and you put it on a slide and we watch the amoebas and paramecium swim around. And then either sadistically or they told us to do it, I can't remember, um, 
put the Bunsen burner over on the little corner of the slide and watch these creatures run for their lives on the other end of the slide. Well, we're not too different than that. When things are unpleasant, our tendency is to like run away and get away from this, get away from these feelings. So even though we have the intention as contemplative artists and practitioners to turn toward our experience, open to it fully, whatever it is, the grief, the sadness, the loss, the shame, the guilt, sometimes we can't be with it fully. We repress it, deny it, bargain with it in some way. And, and as a caveat, I've got to say that sometimes what comes up, the energies that come up are so strong, could result in early trauma or whatever, uh, that we don't want to turn toward it fully in that way, that we need to learn to titrate it, be with it for a few moments, and then back away to a resource a more pleasant or neutral experience or something that can hold us. A prayer or a, or a vision or a uh, the sense of a, uh, a wise person or a holy person. You know? so, so the basic instruction is turn toward and open to, but there are exceptions. And we want to be compassionate to ourselves and learn what those exceptions are. So sometimes we're sitting here and we, there's a little bargaining that goes on. We may have a crick in our back and whatever, and they say, well, I'm going to meditate, or I know what the deal is. I just, you know, I kind of turn toward it and I allow it and I name it and it's burning and it feels like rusty, broken, you know, nails being gouged in there and salt poured, you know. But I know that everything's impermanent and if I'm just with it for a few minutes, it's going to go away. Well, maybe, maybe not. But, um, but that's okay too. You know? So we can recognize that too is happening. That gee, in this moment, I'm not fully opening to this. There's some resistance. In fact, sometimes a lot of resistance. And we can include that into our kindly acceptance. Ah, this is resistance. And out of that, we develop more empathy for our human frailty. We're not perfect at this. Fully opening to difficult things is challenging. But just the intention of being with what is, just that intention, gee, I'm going to try to be with this for a while. That prepares the seedbed for, for growth, deeper understanding, for healing. Like before I left, I spent a lot of hours the last week or so preparing my garden imperfectly, you know, trying to put compost in and tilling it up and getting the fence right. And although the deer jump right over it and have whatever they want, probably, and um, getting the irrigation lines down. Uh, but my intention is that there's going to be growth there. Yeah. So, back a little bit tomorrow. So Mara was recognized and accepted. But Buddha wasn't finished. He was interested in going deeper, exploring intimacy. How are you? What can I do for you? you know, how have you been? So the next level of 
interaction kind of ripens the investigation with kindness. And sometimes the word investigation mixes people up. They think, oh, it's in another analysis that I do, like my checkbook or some problem or some project I'm on. But that's not it. We want to endeavor to feel everything through the body, to embody our experience more fully. Investigation with kindness needs embodiment, embodiment feeling it fully. Jonathan's going to speak in detail about this tomorrow. Investigation with kindness also brings some important perspectives into play. And remember, it's investigation with kindness. Exploring what is going on as we investigate it, feel into it, and at the same time, recognizing the supporting intent of that energy, as I spoke about before. Although at times it can be a little bit misguided. For instance, say you're noticing fear. You know, fear is up. Okay, noticing it, feeling it. And it can be received in a softening perspective that really fear is trying to protect you from danger. It's trying to keep you safe. At times it's very useful. At times misguided. But the intent there is your safety. It's a remnant of survival. It's the organism taking care of itself. Loving itself. And with that perspective, that that's what the organism is doing, again, there's a possibility of some self-empathy, self-compassion, some basic kindness toward yourself. Just like we'd show to another friend of ours or a child who was scared. It's that same kind of felt extension. And if it's a wanting that you feel, all right, you're wanting something, the new iPhone 15 or whatever they're up to now. Or, or maybe you're wanting a person, you know. If that's a, a softening perspective to that is that, ah, the organism's trying to bring about what I need for comfort or for, for, for living in this world. Or if it's, a, if it's an object or if it's a person, oh, it wants connection. You know, yeah, it's kind of a bunch of lusty feelings or whatever, but underneath that, there's a desire for connection. Very natural. And if it's restlessness and worry, you know, excessive, and if excessive planning finds you, I mean, how many of you are planning ex- excessively? You know, that's still a big one for me. You know, the softening perspective is that your organism is thinking and planning and trying to put everything together for your survival. It wants you to live forever and it wants you to live in comfort forever. It doesn't know there's going to be an end to this. It just wants you to be comfortable and safe. And if sloth and torpor has arisen and you're all like fogged in, the softening perspective is that, oh, maybe this energy might be trying to protect you from feeling something that's difficult or painful. Well-meaning, again, but not the kind of strategy 
we want for a long term. And if doubt has arisen in the limbic love context or the softening perspective, doubt doesn't want us to get fooled by anything. We don't want to buy any snake oil. And it's better to paralyze the system, just to have so much doubt that we're just paralyzed, than to make the wrong move and get hurt. You know, better frozen than sorry. So you, I, hope you're, I hope you're getting it, that these energies are not the enemy. It was a huge, huge step in my practice when I realized these energies aren't something outside the practice that I have to get rid of, that get in the way. They're a critical part of practice, learning to come relationship with these, critical part of life. You know, how can they be included, embraced? And working with these energies with a soft, tender perspective was over time teaching me more and more how to have compassion for myself. And by extension, when you learn to have greater compassion for yourself, you're going to have greater compassion for everything in this creation. Yesterday, I was uh, reading about the thawing of relationships between the U.S. and Cuba. I've always been interested in Cuba and the whole revolution there and what happened, etc. And, and uh, I was reading about Fidel Castro's relationship with Senator Pat Leahy from Vermont. Now, the story was really about ice cream. And Fidel grew up on a dairy farm and uh, always had a soft spot for all dairy products. And uh, after the revolution, the embargo was on. They didn't have much money. They're still driving cars from the 50s down there. And, um, but the one thing he wanted to provide amongst you know, education and good health care, et cetera, was he wanted to have everybody have the experience of good ice cream. So there was these state-run ice cream parlors. They're still down there, where for like a few pennies, you know, a nickel or something. You get a banana split or a nice Sunday or whatever, and there'd be these long lines of people that line up, and they'd, people would bring their musical instruments, and they'd hang out, and they'd play, and, you know, it was kind of like a community event. You might spend a couple hours waiting for your five-cent banana split or whatever. So this is an excerpt from the article I read. In the early 1990s, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, a stalwart opponent of the embargo visited one of these parlors with Fidel Castro during his trip to the island. Leahy swore that his home state's product was better and sent Castro a case of Ben and Jerry's to make his point. Castro was pleased. The ice cream swap helped pave the way for lengthy phone calls, the sharing of family pictures, and other personal gestures. In a recent interview, Leahy's former foreign policy aide insisted that 20 years of back-channel exchanges like this achieved a normalization of relations that so much hardline bluster could not. So maybe inviting your challenging energies to a cup of tea and a bowl of some Cherry Garcia ice cream is the way to go. Investigating with kindness. And finally, that brings us to the end.
the end of rain. So when we had, we've had tea with these energies and shared some ice cream and established a, a warmer appreciation, quality of friendliness, uh, some genuine interest and openness. Then the stage is set for a little magic, some real magic. This is where the shift can happen. This is where there can be some release, some freedom. As this full, kindly presence grows, you open to a spaciousness that's kind of imbued with this oceanic sense, a connection with all of creation. That's what's the potential to fall into. It's a shift from this small, solid, separate, defended self into a more expansive, unbounded, connected presence. Whereby we, we can appreciate these waves of our life, the joys and sorrows as they come, as we also feel into that oceanic oneness that we're all a part of, all connected. So, RAIN is this cuteful, kind of cute acronym. It's a cutesy thing for practice for life. Especially helpful for any persistent reactivity, any addictions, or, or at times when you notice thoughts are repeating themselves, to kind of look into what are the emotions that are driving these? You know, what's the charge behind them? Can I be with it with some kindness? Can I become intimate with it? Can I can I slow it all down for a little while? And let the gentle rain fall. Recognize, accept, investigate with kindness. Come to rest in your natural radiance. So tonight I tried to touch on some of these attitudinal factors that hopefully will support your practice, your life, bring maybe a little more ease a little more joy, increase your capacity to love. And we began tonight with some words on humor, some encouragement to, to fall into the awe of this vast mystery, this really incredible creation that we've been born into and we're in for such a short period of time. And we explored an appreciative attitude for these energies that at first glance might seem like, you know, our enemies. They're not cultivating a warmer attitude toward them. Attending and befriending. Tea and ice cream for everybody. This practice is about love and kindness for ourselves and then radiating outward. Bridging all the separations, internal and external, and finding our way home. So 
I'll close with some short words from Ryokan. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. So let's just sit together for a moment or two. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.